Welcome to the U-Turn Podcast. This is the place to connect to who you truly are. We're bringing PhDs, experts, and leaders to help you elevate your mindset in your work life and in your love life so that you can see things differently and truly love your world. I'm Ashley Stahl. I'm a career expert, author, and TEDx speechwriter and booker, and I'm excited to bring you in to this week's episode. Hello, U-Turn friend. It's Ashley Stahl here, and welcome to this week's U-Turn throwback favorite. It's tips about how you can stop playing small with the one and only my best friend, LCSW, uh, incredibly talented coach and therapist, Nicole Naupavar. She talks about how you can question and rework your mindset when it comes to imposter syndrome and so many more other elements of playing small. If you are seeking a therapist, if you are seeking deep work on yourself, if you are looking to set goals and you want someone more coach focused, I can't recommend you DM her enough at therapy by Nicole. And I'll let you get into this week's favorite and throwback. This is Nicole Naupavar. She is a licensed uh, psychotherapist, what I call it, Nick. Yeah, exactly. In uh, Los Angeles, she has clients all over the world. She does therapy, she does coaching, and she does a lot of things. She also runs a large organization called Haya, which she started, um, and it's spelled C-H-A-Y-A. She started completely on her own and has been growing, and now she has multiple events per month for Jewish-Iranian women. And then, of course, there's me, the token white person who is (laughs) crashing the events. (laughs) (laughs) and standing out in a big way. And I wanted to talk to her today because both of us, uh, one fun fact that you will learn right now is that we're both (laughs) runaway brides. We both called off our legs. (laughs) (laughs) So Nick, uh, thank you for coming on to the show. I love you, Ash. Thanks for having me. And I'm so grateful to be here and just get to chat with my best friend and hopefully impart some light onto everybody else. Yeah, you definitely do it for me. I feel like um, Nick and I have like some dual personalities. We call like I call one of hers like crazy (laughs) Nick and she's called one of mine crazy Ash. And we just share like the we are friends that can share these different parts of ourselves in service to releasing, healing, growing. And I know a lot of you may be listening don't have that friend or want to have that kind of friend that you can share everything with in hopes that you can grow or um, feel lighter in your life. And um, Nick, I would love to start for everybody. It's so funny for me to ask you your story because I'm like, I fucking know your story. <laughs> um, but can you share with everybody um, a little bit about your story of like what happened for you in the process of calling off your wedding, but also learning how to step into your greatness and not be playing so small? Yeah, absolutely. So I was in a relationship with someone for about six years. And, you know, a couple of years in, I was ready to get married and sort of move on to the next steps of life and was so excited for it. And he needed more time. And in the, in that time, we talked a lot about what kind of relationship we want to have and what kind of life we want to have. And uh, we talked about money and time and kids and everything. And we finally got engaged. And a couple months before the wedding, I received a very one-sided prenuptial agreement. And there was no room for negotiation. And it was suddenly a condition of getting married. So... It was very tough. It was a really hard time. You were there for me every step of the way, and I'm so grateful. But I think what I learned in just sort of like, I just, in that moment, I realized that I had to step out of my smallness and into my greatness. And it's been a learning process and a growth ever since. And I'm very grateful for that. And do you want me to share a little bit about just what were some of the things that shifted for me or that I had to shift? Yeah. I also think like, I don't know if you're like, if you're open for this, Nick, I think a lot of women listening right now don't understand prenups or Mm. they're afraid of it. Like what are a few things that you can impart to everybody? Because you became like a legal expert by the end of (laughs) getting thrown a prenup last minute, you know? Yeah. Hey, you 
U-turners, I have an exciting announcement. Buy Optimizer's Black Friday mega sale is happening now, and it's going to last throughout the entire month of November. This mega deal is available only for the U-turn community with our special code, so it's really special. If you're anything like me, maybe you started your holiday shopping list, but this year, I challenge you to make your health and the health of those that you really love a top priority. So instead of these little impulse purchases... Let's focus on what really matters. We all know the importance of sleep when it comes to our overall well-being. And while some people might say you can't buy a good night's sleep, I'm here to tell you that, yeah, you actually probably can. I'm talking about Bioptimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough product. It's a true game changer in the quest for a better night of sleep. So as you know, because I rave about this magnesium all the time, It's the only product I trust because it combines all seven critical forms of magnesium. Who knew there are seven forms of magnesium all into one bottle? So keep in mind that when you supply your body with with these essential magnesium forms, you're in for an incredible upgrade. Bioptimizer's Black Friday mega sale is happening now and lasting throughout the entire month of November. So the biggest discount you can get and amazing gifts with purchase are available only through my page at bioptimizers.com slash U-turn with the code U-turn. Choose health over unnecessary things this Black Friday. Head on over to bioptimizers.com slash U-turn. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S, bioptimizers.com slash Y-O-U-T-U-R-N, and make sure you enter the U-turn code at checkout. Your well-rested, calmer, healthier self will thank you. Totally. You know, I'm not against them. I think there are certain things that really work for people and there are certain terms that could really serve a relationship. Um, But I think a huge part of a prenup is how it's presented and what behaviors come out as a result of its presentation. So, for example, like if it's something that's being talked about earlier on in a relationship, that's going to serve the dynamic and I think the trust more than if it's something that comes up a month before or two months before a wedding. Also, just I think the energy around it can sometimes create a sense of why are we talking about divorce? Why are we talking about things not working out? And that could be really difficult to be in. But also just keeping in mind that it doesn't have to be about separation. It can be about teamwork and coming together and really also showing each other how much you want to make this work um, if both sides are willing to turn towards each other and meet each other. Mm -hmm. And I know that, you know, for a lot of the years that you were in that partnership, Nick, like regardless of what kind of person he was or wasn't the person that you were being like, it started off really well as a relationship and then something shifted and you were in so much more smallness than what I know you to have and be. I guess, I think some women are probably listening and they're like, what is it? They don't even know what it looks like when they're in their smallness, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do totally. you think are some indicators for people who might want to check in with that? Yeah. So I see this in my practice as well. When I'm with sitting with a client, there are a lot of different things that I noticed not only in myself, but in some of my friendships and with my clients. The first one is identifying. It's It becomes when you're in your smallness, it becomes very difficult to identify what it is that you need and want. Um, and so it gets harder to sort of access what your desires are, what your wants are, what your likes are, what your dislikes are. And I think that's a result of sort of denial and a long pattern of just like not wanting to address what's important to you in order to keep the relationship alive. And another one is just it's even if like you are able to identify what you need or what you want, another sign is that you don't say it. So it's like actually acting on it and honoring it. And by doing that, I think the way that I see it is you start negotiating with your non-negotiables. So for example, like if a non-negotiable for you is that you want to live in Los Angeles, but your partner wants to live in New York, then you're going to have problems with, you know, how are we going to manage this? And so negotiating with your non-negotiables is like, oh, well, maybe like I can live in New York six months out of the year, or maybe I can. And it it feels very like you're compromising and you want to make the relationship work, but deep down, you know, it's a no, like you can feel it in your body that this is like not aligned with you. So I would say that's another sign. 
And the third sign is like not showing up in the, in the world the way that you want. So, you know, when we're in our smallness, we're showing up, it leaks out in other ways. So it can show up as an anger outburst or anxiety or sadness or physical health, just like being sick or getting into an accident or just like very quiet resentment. And I imagine that hopefully a lot of us want to show up with ease and joy and alignment and, you know, feeling calm and just like overflowing with love. So when you're not in that, it's like, why am I not, why am I not showing up the way I want to? And it might be connected to a part of you that's playing small. Yeah. It's, it's almost like, and I think we both noticed this, Nick is like when your wick is kind of shorter, like you're just overworked or you're tired or you're doing something you don't want to do. It's like you become shorter or snap snippety. And it's like, people don't even notice that when they feel that way, it's, it's feedback. Like you're at a maximum, you're doing too much of what you don't want to do, stuff like that. But also Mm -hmm. what was the point before you had shared, um, about like attitude or resentment? There was something else you had just said, Nick, what was it? The last point that you made, negotiating with your non-negotiables. Yeah. So I think some people right now, even though, you know, we're connected to our body and I know some of you listened to the more recent Ted talk I did about how we have 200 million neurons in our gut, which is our second brain. And that's why when we have anxiety or whatever feeling, our body is actually giving us direct feedback, but a lot of people aren't connected or tuning into that. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I I wanted to talk Nick about like, how do people know when it is a non-negotiable truly beyond their body? Because in my case and in your case, it kept coming up as an issue. You, we just couldn't get resolution. It was like, we thought we were fine with it, but then we bring it up or we'd be upset about it, whatever the thing was again. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about like, what, what did you find to be non-negotiables for you that you're comfortable sharing? Um, that just never like you, what was that moment that you were like, oh, this is not negotiable and I didn't know until now? Um, yeah. So I think, in, are you asking sort of like in regards to a prenup or just like a relationship? Just the in relationship general? in general. Yeah. Okay. So I think a big one was being yelled at, yeah. like screaming, being called names, being controlled and like wanting the person wanting you to like dress a certain way or look a certain way, or, you know, um, take on a certain role in the household that like just is not what you imagined you wanting to be. Mm-hmm. Um, these are some things or sort of like someone who if like they're constantly picking their family of origin over the relationship and sort of feeling like you're coming last. For me, these were things that I was like, these are non-negotiables. I can't do this. Like I'm going to go crazy. Yeah. Um, so I had to, you know, it was very clear that it wasn't going to work. Mm-hmm. And I remember, Nick, the morning that you emailed all of your wedding guests, how many were there that were scheduled to come? Yeah, there were 400 people. I'm Persian and I'm Jewish, so it's like our weddings are ginormous. Yeah, and and for <laughs> yeah. those of you who don't know, like fun fact, about a third of the guest list becomes crashers in this culture. <laughs> and I've learned this through watching, and it's actually crazy. Like they will get on airplanes, book tickets, and crash. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So you're probably accounting for even more than those 400, Nick. What, what went through your mind the morning that you decided, because it was what, like two months before the wedding, one month before the wedding? Uh, we broke up a month before the wedding. Yeah. Yeah. And the prenup came just a few months before that. So it was really unexpected. I remember what was, um, going through your mind when you finally chose to write that email to all 400 guests and mm-hmm. let, and let them know. Cause I think people know what's true for them sometimes, but like, they're not yet at that point where they walk into that bridge of reality and like take the action that really makes it known and makes it complete. So what has that been for you? What was it like to just come to the conclusion that this is over and send that email? Yeah, I think, you know, there was, this is also something I wanted to mention today on our, on our, you know, chat as well, that there was relief, there was sadness, there was anxiety, there was um, acceptance, there were so many contradictory feelings that I was having all at the same time. And I remember you telling me this, that it's okay. Like dichotomies exist when you're, especially when you're going through a breakup and, um, it doesn't always make sense, but you're all of it and you're none of it at the same time. Yeah. And so it was, it was a very big mix of feelings, but I think the one that was the most present for me was just like 
this wave of relief of like, I, I feel very complete that I made the right decision. Mm -hmm. I did everything that I could to make this work and it still isn't working. So I, I rest assured that this is the right choice for me. Mm -hmm. And what are some indicators in your, um, world that maybe with your friendships, um, mm-hmm. that you've outgrown somebody or that something doesn't make sense for you anymore. Because I think what ha- I've watched happen for you, Nick, is like you got this clarity, like you needed to call off the wedding. You and I went to your non-bachelorette party that week. Oh my God. <laughs> which, I mean, those of you can only imagine like having a bachelorette party that suddenly you're no longer selling a, celebrating a wedding. Yeah. And you were, you're a fucking star, Nick. Like you cried when you had to cry and then you had fun when you could have fun. Um, what do you think was huge as far as like allowing yourself to heal, like allowing the grief, because I think a lot of people just don't make these decisions because they don't want to deal with the ramifications that come with it. And for you, it looked like having a bachelorette party that wasn't a bachelorette party and notifying 400 people and just so much shame and guilt and grief. So how did you navigate that? I think the first thing is feel your feelings. A lot of people, there's this myth that grief is going to go away with time, and that's not true. You really have to take the time to feel what's coming up. And the more you push it down, the more it's just going to bubble up and show up later. Mm-hmm. So allowing yourself to just, whatever's coming up, it's going to come up as a wave and it's going to pass. Mm-hmm. And giving yourself that time and that care to just be with it, whatever it is, and, and not resist it. Because I think the resistance just makes everything worse in your like you feel it in your body you feel yourself pushing this thing down and that creates so much tension with the thing that's trying to come up mm-hmm. so that was a big one and also I th- as far as that trip goes just like being around people who are really supportive and safe and trustworthy and you know model a lot of the things that you want moving forward Um, and that you maybe want to embody in yourself, especially if you're in your smallness at the point of a breakup. Like there's a lot of questions around who do I want to be and how do I want to show up next? And so it was really beautiful despite being a really hard time to have friendships and be surrounded by women that I admired and was so grateful to have in my corner. Mm -hmm. You know, and we ended up, I I remember just um, being with you on nights that you were just in complete devastation. And I know that maybe some women who are listening now are engaged or they are thinking about marrying their partner, but there's also another side in their heart that feels like maybe this isn't right. Mm -hmm. If you could connect to that listener right now who is deep down on the fence, what is some feedback you can give them or insights that you would hope they would consider before they take the plunge? I would ask them to maybe write down who it is that they want to be and how they want to show up in this world and how they want to feel in their bodies. So if you want to be the type of person that's, you know, calm and centered and fun and sexy and smart, then then go through that list and then think about what kind of person is it that you would need to be with in order to be supported in showing up as that version of yourself. So if that's not happening in your relationship, then having the conversation with your partner moving forward of like, hey, these are like some things that I want to feel in the relationship more and this is what I need or what I want from you. Um, Can you meet me on that? You know, Mm -hmm. because you're with yourself from the only relationship that you have from the day that you're born to the day that you die is you. And so you hopefully want to feel good about how it's sitting to be in your body and how you're showing up in the world. Everybody else is going to come and go. Yeah. Another thing, Nick, that you have learned really well is around boundaries. And (laughs) you didn't have as many when we first met. And and fun fact, guys, we met outside of a nightclub we couldn't get in almost (laughs) almost 10 years ago, like eight years ago now. Yeah. Um, Best friends ever since. But Nick, like I remember you were so in the 
culture because I understand that, you know, every culture is different. Every culture has different people in it and different standards in it. But what I will say as a whole that I've learned is that, um, the Persian culture from what I've watched is a collective culture that they value the collective versus the individual, whereas American culture values the individual. And so to me, as your everyday white girl growing up in LA, (laughs) it looks like me asserting myself saying, this is what I want. And I'm not responsible to, for, to, you know, to not do this thing I want to do so that so-and-so in my family can be happy. Whereas in your culture, sometimes it's fair to hear somebody say, I'm not doing this because it's going to make somebody else happy. So how have you found a sense of self? Because I think right now you're more integrated and you're still in the transformation in some ways, uh, just like everybody is. um, But you feel more integrated than you've ever been. And it's also looking like a lot of loss for you. Like, Mm -hmm. so can you talk a little bit about boundaries and your, your, the losses that may come in exchange for those wins? Yeah, for sure. So if you come from a collectivistic background, if you're listening and you're coming from, you know, anywhere in the Middle East or anywhere in Asia or just this whole region of East, like just Eastern culture in general is very collectivistic. And we are constantly, we are very lucky to be growing up in this country. Um, but a lot of times we feel very conflicted because we are, we grew up in a home that values the collective and then we left the home and we realized that everybody else is valuing the individual. So how do you balance that? How do you know which one to pick? And I think the first step is just awareness of the fact that these dichotomies exist and these conflicts exist and then deciding for yourself outside of these two cultures, what feels right for me? What is the truth for me? How do I want to show up despite these cultures? As so as far as that goes, I mean, you know, I would I would respond with that. Yeah. Um, remind me the second part of your question. Just like also about some losses that you've gone right. through. What does it I, look like? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's really hard. I think you know when you're setting boundaries, there is there's lot there can be a lot of fear of like, am I gonna lose my friendships? Am I gonna disappoint my parents? Am I gonna, you know, is my relationship with this guy gonna end if I tell him that I I need him to hug me when we're in the middle of an argument or that I need him to show up for me more when we go to, you know, out with my friends. Um, you know, whatever it is. And it could be something like that. It could be as heavy or even more as serious as like you telling the guy that you're dating that like, Hey, this is the number of kids that I want to have. Um, so it, it can really range, but I think in the process of setting your boundaries, there's so much grief and so much loss of like, yeah, some of your friends can't hold the space. They don't, they don't want to, they, they are used to you showing up a certain way and then you change and it's like, well, why did you change? Why are you being different? And I think what's been really beautiful about our friendship, Ash, and I hope this, you know, is a reality or something to strive for in other friendships as well is that we've always been very good about holding space for each other's individual needs and almost sort of like selling, celebrating each other when we do like, hell yeah, like, go do that thing that you need to do. I understand. I want you to have that and I support you. And I know when it's like, when it's time, we'll make time again for each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really interesting too, because, um, we've also, when I just kind of look at friendship and like speaking up and boundaries, there have been times where like, you're not happy with something I'm doing. I'm not happy with something you're doing. And I think the biggest thing we've provided each other is like emotional safety to say the thing. And Mm -hmm. I know that a lot of people listening, one of the top questions I've been getting is around friendship, which hasn't necessarily surprised me, but I just didn't think it would be the top question, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I know that with all these boundaries comes loss. So how are you navigating, you know, because even though there's gains with any boundary, there's always loss too. So what what are you experiencing when you start to look at friendships you have And you're starting to notice like, oh, wow, if I start to assert myself or ask for what I want, this friendship doesn't work anymore. Like what are some um, pieces of feedback or things that you're seeing as part of it, like people's comments or what are you going through as you're growing and releasing the attachment to what people think? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's always coming up even this week. I'm like going through so many changes and I'm feeling the need to set more boundaries and more boundaries. And, um, one of the exercises that I've been doing is writing down 
all of the assumptions that I have, all the negative assumptions that I have, if I don't, like, if I uphold these boundaries. So for example, like I'm, like I said, like I'm gonna, my parents are gonna feel abandoned by me, or my friends are gonna feel like they're losing me, or my you know, my board members for my organization are going to feel uninspired to want to work with me just, or my productivity is going to go down if I start to honor myself more. Um, and then I ask myself, okay, so these are all of my assumptions. What do I want my relationship to be like with these assumptions? And the, you know, the answer that I came up with was that I, I want to challenge them. Mm. And so I'm watching this week just like how a lot of these things are not true and they're made up. And as I'm setting these boundaries, some people have definitely been like, wow, I want to, I'm more attracted to you because you're setting these boundaries or I, you know, completely understand and go do your thing or um, my productivity is higher because I'm giving myself the self-care that I need in order to show up in an inspiring way at work. Mm -hmm. So just challenging those beliefs has been really helpful. Okay, so I want to ask you, Nick, also about this concept of codependency, because I know a lot of people listening (laughs) don't know what it is. And I was just reading yesterday that 7 million American women are depressed and 40 million Americans, primarily women, are labeled as codependent. So, Mm. you know, with a a population of around 300 million, that's quite a chunk of people who are in codependency. Can you kind of share how you relate to what codependency is and so that maybe somebody listening could kind of identify with it if they're in that camp? Sure. So the way that I would define it is that sort of it becomes very difficult to know where yourself begins and ends and where other people begin and end. So it becomes very mucky around um, you sort of start to take on other people's likes and wants and dislikes and needs and experiences and behaviors. And you try to manage all of those things as if you control them Mm -hmm. Um, and vice versa. They, they do the, they do the same maybe, or maybe not with you. And that's sort of like this codependent relationship. I'm actually curious to know how you would define it also. Yeah, I think I see it as um, doing something or not doing something to prevent someone else from having certain feelings or experiences about it. Mm -hmm. So like, I'm going to go to the grocery store so that they're not mad at me. I'm going to invite this person so that they feel included versus Mm -hmm. I want to invite this person or I'm happy to go to the store. I feel like it's Mm -hmm. living your life in a way where you're, um, it's like a sense of control where you're wanting to prevent yourself from having to experience other people or for preventing other people from having a reaction towards you. So when when I think of the codependent person, I think of the person that is just constantly doing things with their time and their lives. And some are not constant. It's just like a small thing in their life that it keeps them, um, from listening to themselves. And it just keeps them in this cycle of living for other people and other people's needs. Turners, so sorry for the quick interruption, but I want to make sure you know that this episode has been brought to you by the Job Offer Academy, our e-course to help you land a new job you love. So if you're sick of applying for jobs and never hearing back, and you'd like to try a free version of our job hunting course, just head on over to U-TurnPodcast.com slash job offer. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N podcast.com slash job offer. Now let's get back to this week's episode. What would you say are some signs that you might be codependent? Such a good one. I know. I'm thinking about it as I'm asking it to you. I'm like, well, what the fuck are the signs? But I can, I mean, I think a big one is passive aggressive behavior. If you, if you and your partner are constantly trying to guess and meet each other's needs without talking about it, then some like the expectations are not clear and sometimes as a result there can be passive aggressive you know back and forth um so for example like if i if i decide that i want to go out with my boyfriend instead of you know my family and my parents are like oh i get it like you're just gonna you're dishing us that's like a passive aggressive way of saying like why aren't you spending time with us so that we're okay? 
um, mm-hmm. why aren't you spending time with us so that we aren't upset? That's the key um, right there, Nick, the idea of so that we're okay. Why, why yeah. I'm going to do this so that they're okay. And I also know that there's this idea though, Nick, that we should be generous and care about the people in our lives. So sure. how do you kind of distinguish between being a generous giving person and abandoning yourself? Um, I think you have to see how it feels in your body. And I think you and I have talked about this. So if you're feeling like constriction in your body, when you think about like doing something for somebody else, then it's probably coming from a fear place or a codependent place versus if you're doing something out of, um, a sense of like expansiveness and love and ease and flow in your body, then it's coming from your truth and it's aligned with you as well. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And also I think another lens of it and probably the easiest way to see codependency is like through children of alcoholics, like, Mm -hmm. or if you're in a relationship, yeah. Yeah. Can you paint a picture of that, Nick? Like, what does it look like when you, maybe you have a partner that has a drug issue or alcohol issue and there's codependency? Sure. So if you have a problem or if you have a partner with, um, you know, who's struggling with, um, you know, alcoholism. So one of the ways that it could show up is typically when someone is moving through addiction, um, they're neglecting the, you know, different areas of their life in order to make sure that they're getting their fix or, um, you know, their, performance in other areas of their life is going down. So uh, a codependent partner might pick up those pieces and be like, you know what, I'm going to make sure that the laundry gets done and I'm going to make sure that I clean up the mess that he's made. And I'm going to make sure that, you know, the apartment is clean and I'm not going to tell him that it's his responsibility for making this mess because that's going to just, that's going to create confrontation. And I don't want to have to really, the the core of it is like, you don't want to set the boundary. Mm. Um, so as a result, the person is reinforced, the alcoholic is reinforced for those behaviors and they continue to do those behaviors because their partner is cleaning up the mess for them. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's basically like a lack of, it's like a lack of responsibility. Um, I think when we engage in codependent behaviors, we're not, allowing our friends or our parents or our partners or, you know, our colleagues to, um, take responsibility and accountability for their part. For me in my relationship, what it looked like was, um, my partner would, you know, my partner would tell me, I just want you to be happy. Why aren't you happy? And I would say, because I'm not getting met on what I need in this relationship. And he would say, that's, you know, that's, I can't do that for you right now. And be like, okay, okay, you're right. I just need to manage my own anxiety around this. Or I need to um, convince myself that I'm okay with this where it's at. So it's like not, it's like, it can look like a lack of accountability on one partner's end and an over accountability on the other partner's end. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I I also want to circle back to this idea. I remember when I was thinking about calling off my wedding, um, I was, I'll never forget Nick. And I don't know if I've mentioned this to you in a minute, but we were walking out of, um, I think it was like a Nordstrom in Santa Monica, like five years ago or something. And I was saying to you, like, what did I say? I said something like, you know, this little whisper in my head Mm. won't stop. And you said, no, it sounds a little more like a scream. Mm -hmm. And I never forgot you saying that because I was like, yeah, she's right. Like, this is not a little whisper. And I think a lot of people who hear like a whisper in their mind or in their heart about something don't want to believe that it's really a scream, you know? So, I would love to learn from you, Nick, like how do you connect to that voice inside of you that is so wise and gives you so much information? Because I think everybody has different practices. Um, and I know that you are very clear on kind of like how you navigate when you need some time to think. Yeah, I would. I think the first thing is like slowing down. I think it's so easy to hear that voice and you're in a rush or you're living your life and you're doing your day to day and you're like, eh, it's nothing, whatever. I'm just going to move on. Um, but then it, it'll keep coming back and keep coming back and it'll get louder and louder and louder until you kind of have to deal with it. Um, so if you're hearing these little whispers here and there, slow down and give them a voice. And what I mean by that is one way to do that is again, like journaling, writing down what the voice is saying it is, is saying and just putting it on paper 
and without sort of allowing yourself and giving yourself permission to just let whatever comes up on the paper come up Mm -hmm. Um, instead of trying to manage it or judge it or shame it, you know, letting it just be there and then asking yourself, like, what do I need? What does this voice need in order to feel safe or met? Mm -hmm. Um, and following up with that and then giving it to yourself or asking for it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just, um, I hadn't mentioned to you, Nick, today when we were catching up, I just started meditating again and, Mm -hmm. It's been so good, you know, just giving myself 20 minutes and having one mantra and sitting in complete silence and just um, creating this space because I think a lot of people just, they don't realize that like if you're not slowing down and creating space, like creative thoughts can't come through, like you're you're too busy Mm -hmm. doing. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, there was a study actually that just it's called the Good Samaritan study where basically people who are in a rush are less likely to notice somebody who's in need, um, but they're also less likely to notice something that's inspiring. So slowing down is it's so important. Yeah, and, and I know that it's it, it, it's sometimes the answer to slowing down is just fucking slowing down, you know, (laughs) but like, is there a way that, is there something that you do? And I know it's ironic to ask what you're doing so that you can be, but is there something that you do to allow yourself to get back into that state of awareness and slowness? Yeah. So what I do, and there are a lot of different things that you can do, but what I, what has worked best for me and it's worked really well with my clients as, as well is if you're new to sort of building this voice and exercising this muscle in your body of honoring what's coming up for you, um, putting a timer on your phone, like once a day or once an hour of, you know, what do I need? Asking yourself once an hour, what do I need? And then giving it to yourself because the more that you honor this voice, the louder it gets, the easier it gets to honor it. It starts to become just like a very easy conversation instead of this thought that pops up once in a while and then disappears and then comes back and gets louder and louder every time. Mm-hmm. And um, Nick, for anybody listening who wants to connect to themselves and, um, is experiencing some level of grief. What would you say is uh, a question or something you can offer for them? Because I know a lot of people, maybe they're going through some sort of loss. Maybe they are realizing in this conversation, they need to let go of a relationship. Like how do you recommend people navigate grief in the best possible way? Um, so if you have just gone through a loss, I would, I mean, we talked about a lot of different things. We've talked today about feeling your feelings, being kind to yourself, um, begin asking yourself what you need and then giving it to yourself. Another big one is writing a closure letter. Um, and what this can look like is it it takes a lot of energy. So just as a disclaimer, it's a lot, um, and you kind of have to be ready for it, but, just writing down, you know, if it's, if you're breaking up with someone, if you just broke up with someone, for example, is writing down all your memories with them in chronological order. And then from there, categorizing those memories into four different categories. So the first one would be what you forgive, um, what you take responsibility for, um, what you appreciated in the relationship, and what you need to let them know. And then at the end, you write goodbye to that person and you do not send them this letter. This is 100% for you. Um, sometimes when we send the letter, then it becomes all about making a point to them. It's not about them. It's This is about you getting the closure that you needed from the relationship. So yeah, I would I would recommend that as sort of like a grief exercise. I love that. That's so good, Nick. And you've never actually mentioned this to me. I feel like you mentioned something of this light, but I've not heard that exactly. So that's great. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I don't know, like, are there any questions you have for me as we're just jamming on this topic, Nick? Because I feel like I asked you everything that was on my mind with it. Yeah. Um, I think I, I'm curious to know from you, like how you think shame plays a role in someone's smallness and how to kind of maybe bounce out of the shame or get out of that shame mentality. Because I think shame can breed a lot of smallness for people. I'm small. I'm smiling, Nick, because I feel like you've told me I'm pretty shameless. Like, (laughs) so I'm like, uh, what, what about that? No, but seriously, like, um, I would say, um, 
to me, when somebody's operating in shame, they're operating under the belief that if they share some part of themselves, that there's inherently something wrong with them. And it's almost like they're in the belief that this issue is only them and not part of most other human experiences. Um, And there's a loneliness to that. So I would say anyone who's feeling shame would have to look at what are they believing about themselves is wrong and how can they forgive themselves for those limitations? And one way to, to do that or set yourself free of that is probably to take a look at all the evidence in the world of other people who are facing the same thing or cultivating a sense of community of other people who have faced that or reading a book to create that sense of comfort and understanding It starts with being able to have the conversation, though. You know, it's like so many people walk around with shame and they never release it because they never step into the truth that they have to face it. They have to share it with somebody um, for it to really exist beyond them. And that's the beginning of the healing. I think for me, like you've made so many jokes and it feels so true. Like I kind of came out of the womb in some sense shameless. Like I was just like, whatever, I'm just going to be me, you know, and I'm definitely not confident across the board on everything. Like I'm not confident with fitness, for example, like I'll go to the gym and be like, what the fuck am I doing here? Like this looks crazy. Um, or like a fitness class, you know, like it's really dark to watch what happens to me in those even darker. If we watch you, Nick, let's be honest. Yeah, I'm waiting for that. <laughs> I know if anybody wants to see something interesting, invite Nick to soul cycle. You'll never forget oh it. <laughs> it's really, really something. I worked out the other day, Nick, and I was like, Oh, I should invite Nick to soul cycle. Then I was like, wait a minute. I don't want to no, put myself through watching idea. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, But, you know, it's like, I think also for me with shame, I have found that the more I'm willing to name it and own it, the sooner I see it as a filtering system. So if there's something I'm uncomfortable with or not proud of, like, for example, when I lost all my money, I wasn't proud because I've grown up around personal development where people say, you are the people you surround yourself with. And I thought, oh my gosh, all of my friends are so wealthy and successful. I lost $5 million. Am I downing their success average by being around them? Mm, Um, And But yeah, so that was like a shame story that I had when I lost all my money. And you were never somebody that I felt that with for so many different reasons. But I went over to my friends and owned it and named it and said, hey, there's a part of me that's afraid that you're not going to want to connect with me as much because I made this mistake. Like I'm, you know, maybe going to hurt your consciousness or your mindset because of these choices I've made. Like, is that true? And a lot of people like... As a result, I actually saw you overcompensate. So that was really interesting. Ooh, tell me more. Like you were, you were in the shame, and you were just like so quick to when you were feeling that, and you were feeling that smallness around your friends of like, let me do this for them, let me do that for them, and like, yeah, hundred percent. You would just like you wouldn't even check in with yourself about like, oh, do I actually want to do this right now? Do I actually want to hear this right now? Do I actually want to, you know, be a part of this experience? And it it was, I think people do that when they're in shame or when they're in their smallness. A big sign is like taking, like for me, it looked like over accountability, like taking responsibility for, you know, my, my partner just not showing up the way that I needed him to. And I think for you, it looked like sometimes overcompensating, like, let me give, give, give all this stuff so that this, you know, they stay or that I add value or that the friendship continues, you know? Totally. Yep. Yep. Definitely. And, you know, I, I think that I have hit a maximum and I think what I notice is that the busier I get with my work and the more invested I get in what I'm up to. Um, so like I start to feel better in my body, like, oh wow, I'm, I'm working on this poetry book I feel so good about or whatever. And that yeah. the more I'm flooded with those feelings of goodness, the more I feel sensitive to what doesn't feel good. So I think usually if somebody has a lot of shame or a lot of disconnect from you know, sharing it or even noticing it. It's like, do something that makes you feel good and you'll quickly notice where you don't, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I, I would so say true. That. I have one more question for you. Yeah. Talk to me, Nick. What are some, like, what are maybe your top three takeaways or lessons that you got from, you know, ending a relationship or ending that relationship specifically where you called off your wedding as well? Gosh, top three things I learned. Number one is like the signs are already there. 
I feel like the reasons that I ended the relationship five years in, I already noticed a year in and I was too scared to, to notice, to let myself fully soak in what I was noticing. So I think the hack is like, it's, it's all like ripping a bandaid and you know, I've talked about it this way, Nick, where it's like, it's going to hurt no matter what. So do you want to get the hurt process started so that you can start living sooner? Mm-hmm. And so what I've learned is like, welcome the hurt if it's going to happen anyway, for some reason, people buy into this delusion that if they don't face it, it's just not happening or it will stop happening. But usually it's like a toothache in relationships. Like that area of difference between you, that toothache's only going to get worse and you don't want to get the whole tooth pulled, you know? So it's, I think another thing with... But I think it's also important, Ash, to like hit some, like you've said before, like some people have to hit their rock bottom. They have to hit that point of like, oh, I, I think everyone says it. Like I saw all the signs all along or early on, but everyone has a process uh, at which until they're yes. like, okay, this is enough. And this is not what I want to be doing anymore. Yeah. You know? And and I think that that comes down to your pain tolerance and your needs. Like with you, Nick, I've seen different levels of pain tolerance. So like Sometimes I'll see you have like low tolerance for pain, meaning like, oh, if this hurts, I'm out. And then I've seen you have higher tolerances in other areas where you're like willing to suffer for a while until you've hit the bottom of what you're willing to do. I think everybody has that. Like I definitely have that um, where it's like, okay, in my romantic relationship, I actually have a medium threshold for pain. Like if it's too painful, I need to go. Um, and I think that comes from my life experiences. Like I dated too many people that weren't good for me and now I'm done. Like I've had the experience, I've learned the lesson. Um, whereas with my career, I have a lower threshold now. And I think that's also from my experiences. Like if I don't feel good about it, I don't want to do it. Like I don't have a very high threshold for pain. I'm not really willing to suffer for that long. Um, so I think a good question for anybody listening is to figure out like, look at your, your professional life, look at your career, look at your relationship, look at your family, look at yourself, look at your fitness. Like what is your threshold for pain? One to 10, like 10 is like, you're willing to put up with a ton of shit for the sake of something great with it, or just for the sake of having answers about it, you know? And I'm just like making this up now, but I think that there's something to it because a lot of people aren't paying attention to what their threshold is. And it's good to know like, oh, I have a really high threshold for pain and dating. I'm willing to put up with a ton of pain. And and, and is that working for me? Like, do I want that to continue to be the bar that I'm holding? You know, and, and there's no wrong answer. Yeah, I think it depends on your values. So mm-hmm. I know for you, for example, like you value ease yeah. more than a lot of other people. So your pain threshold in certain areas is going to be lower because you I mean ease is not pain is not ease. Yeah. Um, so it depends on the values as well. And it get, depends on how many of your other needs are being met in that situation. Yeah. Um, I think there's also like a ton of like it feels kind of like bullshit, Nick, in personal development where people are like, pain is growth. And I think people misunderstand Mm -hmm. that. Like, yeah, you do happen to grow when you face pain, but there's a lot of other graceful ways to grow. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and pain doesn't have to be so visceral that your whole body is just like breaking down and your emotionality is like out the window, you know, like, yes, um, a thousand percent. And I also think when you're saying like ease, it's like, I think some people could, think like when they're listening to us, like, yeah, of course I value ease, but it's like, but do you though? Look at the results you're creating in your life. Is your career easy? Are your friendships easy? Is your relationship easy? Is your fitness easy? If it's not, and you're doing it anyway, is it because you don't value ease or is it because you don't believe it's possible? That has to be with beliefs, you know? Mm -hmm. Man, Nick, Mm -hmm. people don't ever ask me questions on these podcasts. I'm like, (laughs) hit me the fuck up. Let me take over this whole thing. Well, you were also mentioning a couple other things that you learned from calling off the wedding. Oh, yeah. So I would say usually the first thing, if I could have one line of a bio for the world to know, it's you already know. That would be my Mm -hmm. one sentence. Like you already know everything. Um, So I already knew it wasn't right and just didn't want it to be true. Um, I think I masked it in the story that I didn't know when really I just didn't like that I knew. I think the second thing was masculine and feminine energy. Like you know, masculine energy moves forward. Feminine energy is everything else. It's the space. Um, it's receiving it's, and and when I think about who I was in that connection, if, if it's a dance, like 
there's something about my dynamic with him where he was more in feminine energy, like more in relaxing and more in um, letting things happen that I felt like I had to make things happen. So the dynamic we had, I was in a masculine energy and I realized I don't want to live in that energy in my partnership. So you weren't being who you wanted to be. I wasn't being who I wanted to be, which goes back to your point of making a list. And those of you who didn't write that down, it's such a good tip from Nick, making a list of all the qualities you want to embody at your best. And then looking at the qualities of a person that brings that out for you. Mm -hmm. Um, so the moment that I stopped dating him, I stepped into so much more femininity, like allowing and curiosity and peace and receptivity and stillness versus like doing and pushing and making happen and handling, mm-hmm. um, was not the look I'm going for. Yeah. And what's the third thing I probably learned? Um, I think just face the truth. Like you already know and do something about it. Like your life is going to be so much, your life, the quality of anybody who who is listening to this right now, the quality of your life, I think is directly related to how quickly you're willing to honor the truth. You know, it's like, okay, you can either spend the next like two years just playing this out or you can be like, the truth is the fucking truth. And I see it. And now it's time more than any time because I don't want to spend another year dancing with the truth and denying mm-hmm. it. So I've become a lot quicker in accepting what is. I've become a lot more sensitive to what feels good and what doesn't because of it. And I also think I've, you know, like this weekend I called you, Nick, and I was in a tiff with William, the boyfriend, about uh, our living situation. And it was like, I'm I'm um, also aware of who the right person is for me. And I have a lot more of a threshold for navigating challenges when I feel like something is right. But it wasn't, I wasn't able to access that until I was willing to face what's wrong and for me. Um, so I would say facing the truth is everything. Yeah, 100%. Who you are always wins, as you say, Ash. Isn't that the <laughs> best, Nick? Mm-hmm. It's so true. Who you are always wins. Um, anything you want to leave everybody on a note with, and anybody who's listening, um, Nicole is on Instagram at, at therapy by Nicole. Um, she posts really cool quotes and um, she posts her events sometimes. So, you know, if you're a fellow white girl like me, you want to go to her events, she'll oh put, put it out there. Um, <laughs> Nick, talk to me about where you'd want everybody to find you or what you have going on. Yeah, you can also find me um, at my website at www.nicolenaupravar.com. And, you know, if you want to meet for a consultation or, um, you know, I have some spots right now in my private practice, so I'm happy to chat with you and see if this would be a fit. Thank you so much for tuning into the U-Turn podcast. And thank you again so much for our sponsors. We are here because of you and to our listeners. Thank you for checking out our sponsors. We always pick people and brands that we trust and we believe in. And just for listening to the show, writing your reviews on the Apple app, and just being willing to make your own U-Turns. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.